right, good evening, everyone. So there was this lady, and this lady had a friend, and this friend was moving to Cape Town, as is the custom, and she was sending him, uh, giving her sort of a uh, going away party, and she ordered a bouquet of flowers, and when the flowers came, it was not what she wanted, and she phoned the florist and said, this is what happened here, and the florist says, you think you're having a bad day, because by the way, what, what the, the message was, was sorry for your loss, sorry for your loss was the, the flower arrangement, so she phones the florist and says, what's going on, and then the florist says, you think you're having a bad day, I need to explain to a funeral party uh, why they have a, a banner and a flower arrangement saying, good luck in your new location. Now, the, the question of a new location is a good one. Why? <clears throat> because when we die, we go to a new location. And many people up and down the centuries have come on, on different sides of this particular question. And if you're a materialist, maybe you're a skeptic, then, then you would say when you are buried, you are buried. And you are in the ground. And... And, and that's it, and you become fertilizer, as it were. Who of you have seen the movie Dead Poet Society? Dead Poet Society, anyone? Okay, good. Dead Poet Society, <clears throat> Mr. Keating, who's the protagonist in the movie, he stands behind the boys whilst they are looking at the trophy cabinet, and he tells them, food for worms, boys, food for worms. And then the boys are very perplexed. What is he doing? And he says, uh, one day you will be fertilizing daffodils. Seize the day, seize the moment. So what is he saying? It's a wonderful movie, but it is super secular and actually a little bit depressing. But the, the moral of the story is you're going to die, you're going to rot, and that's the end of it. You're food for worms, at best fertilizer. So, so make it count, this little bit of time that you have. So that's what many people today say. That's what happens when you die. That's your new location. But throughout history... Most people believe that there is another location that you go to, and because you're going to be in that location far longer than you're going to be in this location, you need to take a lot of care in that particular location to ensure that everything is in order for that particular place. So that's why when you visit Egypt, the, the main attraction, what is that? They are the pyramids of, of Giza. And what's a what, what were the pyramids, or what are the pyramids? They were tombs, tombs to pharaohs built by 20,000-odd people for 20-odd years, and inside many people have discovered so many riches that these pharaohs try to take with them in the afterlife. So the structure that has been the tallest structure in the world for the longest time is what? A tomb. And then if you go to China, then you may have heard of the terracotta warriors. Anybody here heard of the terracotta warriors? Now... They discovered it a, a couple of years ago, and they discovered this one vault, and what they found were seven-odd thousand soldiers, uh, well, uh, statues of soldiers, but each with a unique facial expression, and they are guarding something, and then they discovered there are several vaults, so you're talking about thousands upon thousands of these statues, and they are looking outward, and in the middle was the emperor, and he, when he went into his new location, he wanted an army there because you can never be too safe. And he took riches with him. He even took food with him. 
He even packed food. And the only food, by the way, that survived, that remained, was a hamburger from McDonald's. Not even centuries of being buried under the soil can digest a hamburger from McDonald's. That's just a, a fun fact. So, uh, by the way, another fun fact, on the, the Terracotta Warriors, they wanted to keep the location secret. And in order to do that, they, they, they buried the remaining workers that, that worked on this massive tomb in the tomb itself so that they cannot spread the message as to where the tomb is. So, so this is what, what somebody did in order to get ready for the next location. What is the most famous building in, in India? The Taj Mahal. What is the Taj Mahal? It is a tomb. A prince built it for his wife who died giving birth to his 14th child. And it is beautiful when you go inside and it's this wonderful tomb and it's this national, uh, almost global monument. But here's the thing, friends. There's one tomb that dwarfs all of them. There's one tomb that dwarfs all of his tomb, all of these tombs. And ironically, this tomb is not famous for what is in it. This tomb is famous for what is not in it. And I'm, of course, talking about the tomb of Jesus. Now, despite of what they tell you when you go to Jerusalem, we don't know where his tomb is. Uh, there are garden tombs there, and it is a nice visual and gives you an idea of what it might have looked like, but we don't know. Uh, where Jesus' tomb was. But the one thing that we know is that that empty tomb has changed the course of history forever. And the reason why we are gathered here today is because of that empty tomb. As a matter of fact, Christianity stands or falls on that empty tomb. Now, friends, we've been going on a journey, liturgically speaking, from what is called Ash Wednesday, where we are reconciled with our mortality, we are reconciled with the fact that, that uh, from dust to dust, from ashes to ashes, we, will, we came from the dust, we will return to the dust, and, and when we do a bit of introspection and we realize there's a lot of uh, sin and attachments in our lives that we need to get rid of, and then we go through this time of Lent, and then we reach... Good Friday. But friends, let's be honest, there's nothing good about Good Friday. It was a terrible Friday. It was the darkest of moments in, in human history. And then what happens after, after Friday? You've got the silence of Saturday. Just a deafening silence. And it's darkness. And it's bad. And we shouldn't just skip to the Sunday. Because the Friday... And the Saturday in this story that we are walking in is terrible. Now, I've been confronted with death over the last few months more than I've ever been before. And I, I had a heart attack end of last year, as, as most of you know. But since I've had symptoms that were similar to when I had the, the heart attack, and, and the heart attack was touching ago, I should have died. And, and I've had symptoms similar to just before when I had the heart attack. And I, I didn't quite know what to do. So I, I would phone the doctor and they would say, just go to the emergency room. And then there in the emergency room, I would uh, send voice notes to my two boys that they can listen to it when they are old. And although it, it, they were all false alarms, uh, you, you are very much confronted with death 
and the prospect of your own mortality. Our youngest boy, <coughs> Yemen, he was in ICU a couple of weeks ago for, for two weeks. And although it was never life-threatening, the doctors uh, told us, there was one day in which he was struggling and I was away and every time my wife phoned, there was something in me that just thought she's going to tell me that he didn't make it. And these, these are some examples of, of the darkness, of what life looks like on the Friday and on the Saturday. Not long ago, a lady walked through those doors and, and she was seven months pregnant. But her face was not telling a story of life. Her face was telling a story of death because two or three days before she came here, her husband, a young man in his 30s, just went to the pharmacy, was struggling with the flu, collapsed right next to her and, and died. And here she is, seven months pregnant, and what is supposed to be a joyous moment and a joyous time is just contaminated with confusion and loss and grief. Good friends of this church, they took their eldest boy to just get his tonsils removed. One of the very basic procedures today. And they were walking into the hospital hand in hand, smiling, talking, cracking jokes. And an hour later, the doctor came out and said he didn't make it, losing their eldest child, four years old. A friend of mine, ministers in KZN, he, he had to deal with the situation where this boy was obviously there were a lot of floods, <clears throat> but the rain had stopped, but the flooding was still continuing. He leaves home, goes to school, cycles to school, greets his mom, greets his dad, greets his mo uh, grandmother, greets his sister. And when he, comes, when, he, when he came back, the house is gone and, and everyone in it. He left school with a massive family. He came home an orphan. There's a lot of darkness on the Friday and on the Saturday, and it can be overwhelming. Whether it is physical death, relational death, financial death, the darkness is real. Death is real. The struggle is real. Now in, in the gospel, especially the gospel according to John, you can see this escalation of darkness that constantly increases. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths of spices, as is the, the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Let's just stop there for a moment. It is still dark. That is the, the line that we need to just uh, focus on for, for a second. When Mary goes to the tomb, John is very careful to tell us it is still dark. But something is brewing. 
there is hope that is that is just stirring underneath the surface uh, surface and you've got these three shadowy figures who emerge and they are surprisingly brave at this point Jesus has been abandoned by 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 all of his trusted disciples but now you've got these three figures and very unlikely figures to to uh, to be honest You've got Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Both of these guys were rich, wealthy, almost aristocratic type of Jews. And, and they followed Jesus. They were very intrigued by Jesus. But out of, out of fear of the religious establishment, they mainly followed Jesus in the dark. So Nicodemus would only come to him in, at nighttime so that nobody sees him. So they were... Uh, they were convinced by Jesus, but they didn't like to be associated with him but it because it came with all sorts of social uh, impl uh, implications. You know, he was cancelled back then. And, and then you've got Mary. And, and Mary Magdalene, well, we don't know much about her, but what we do know is that seven demons were exercised from her. Now, I mean, that's, that's quite rough. And many people have speculated maybe she was a prostitute, but I can assure you something dodgy was, was going on there. So you've got these three dodgy figures, and they are the ones who are emerging in this darkness as the tide is about to turn. And that to me is encouraging, by the way, because most of the time I'm a half-hearted disciple, so to know that God can use this fellowship of, of, of half-hearted night followers encourages me. He, he can use even you guys, believe it or not. Now, the, the story continues, and I want to read from John 20, 11 to, to 15. But Mary st stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She said to her, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, little Mary. Here's this, you can imagine, small, not much older than a teenager, Jewish woman. And, and she asked this man, Please, just tell me where is his body. I will dig it up. I will carry it myself. I just want to say goodbye properly. I just want to give a, a proper burial. Please don't play games with me. I beg you. But there's something that Mary doesn't know. There's something that Mary doesn't understand yet. Nobody understands this. But Jesus spoke about it just a few chapters ago in John 12. So if you've got your Bibles, you can just briefly turn We'll just listen along. John uh, chapter 12 from verse 23. So Jesus was trying to prepare them for what is about to happen. And there he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What a curious image. But that is the image that I, I, I want you, if, if there's one thing that you can take away from, from this evening, it, it should be this image, the image of this seed. You see, a, a seed is planted, I know. I mean, that's, that's worth your price of admission right there. A seed is planted. A body is buried. Now, it looks the same on the surface. You, you dig a hole, you put an object in that hole, you cover it with soil. But the difference lies in the potential of the seed. There's just a little bit, almost on a microscopic level, hope, potential in that seed. And when that seed dies and sheds most of, of what it used to be, then it breaks open and new life appears. I don't want to brag, but I've been, I've been a bit of a farmer as of late. So in my now small garden, I've always been fascinated by avos, and it always feels like such a waste to throw the, the pit away. So I've been putting them in the ground, and I've got at least 14 avo plants, by the way, uh, when you come to my, to my house. And what's amazing is the fact that the majority of that, that pit, that seed, is useless for when the plant comes out. You bury it in the, in the soil, and then there's a little bit of green in the middle, but the rest of it, 95% of it, must die and wither and go away for this new life to come out. But friends, when you are planted, it's still not nice. I don't know how many of you can relate to seed, but if you are pushed in the ground, it's not nice. It's dark down there. It's moist down there. But then, if you die to yourself, then something happens. I want you to pick up on something. We've read this already. And if, you, if, if you're the head boy, head girl type, then maybe you would have picked up on this. But in John 19, verse 41, we read this. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb. Okay? Garden, garden. And then, when, Jesus, when Mary just spoke to, to Jesus, supposing him to be the gardener, Mary said to him. Can you see that John is trying to whisper something in our ear? Garden, garden, gardener. You've got that repetition. Did you guys hear that? Even if you didn't hear that, are you hearing it now? The word garden is repeated over and over again. What is a garden? A garden is a place where seed goes, where seed dies, and where seed produce new life. And it is no coincidence that the, the, the biggest moment in the history of the world and definitely the biggest uh, moment in the, in the biblical imagination is centered around this garden. And when God created mankind, all the way back in Genesis, where does he put mankind? In a garden. And in that garden, that first garden, all was lost. And in this new garden, hope is restored. And the saddest place in the world, I can assure you, on the Saturday 
and on the Sunday morning early, that tomb was the saddest place in the world, was about to become the most hopeful place in the universe. The story continues in, in John 20. John 20 from verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus just looked at Mary and said, Mary. It might be the shortest sermon ever. And it had an amazing impact. Mary. And Mary runs to tell the rest of the disciples. At that point, the church consists of Mary. <laughs> she goes around and she tells people, the Lord has risen. Can I just be naughty for a while? I know this is complex, but I can't help myself. But at this, time, at this moment, it really looks like Mary is the apostle to the apostles, okay? And she didn't get the memo that she's not allowed to tell a group of men about Jesus being resurrected. All right, but I'm just, I'm just parking that there for a moment. And by the way, there is no way, there is no way that the early church would have invented this. We've spoken about this before, but come on, man. The uh, women weren't allowed to testify in, in a court of law. If, if 500 women saw something and two men, the two men's uh, witness was worth more than the 500 women. Uh, not only that, Mary Magdalene was a woman with a bit of a dodgy history. She's got a bit of a reputation. Nobody's going to believe her. And if you ever go to Ephesus, has anybody here been to Ephesus? It is in modern-day Turkey, and it's, it's one of the best preserved archaeological sites of, of the Roman Empire. And the, the main site is the Library of Celsus. So even if you, if you haven't been there and you've got an image of what Ephesus looks like, it is this library, at least the facade of that library. And that library was, was built or dedicated to Celsus. Celsus was this very famous Roman scholar. And he wrote about many things, but one thing he wrote about was Christianity, and he wrote against Christianity. And what he said is, guys, come on. We can't take this seriously. This thing was based on the eyewitness testimony of women. And we can imagine that Paul got tired of everybody. Every time he talks about the, the, the resurrection, people say, ah, women saw it. I mean, Mary Magdalene started the whole rumor. Are you really going to trust this? So Paul gets tired of having to defend that. So when he writes about it in the passage that Anna just read to, to us in 1 Corinthians 15, and he mentions to all the people that, that he appeared to, then he appeared to Peter, then to John, then to James, then to more than 500 at one time, you know who's conveniently left out of that account? The woman. <laughs> he leaves the woman because he doesn't want to talk about this um, embarrassing detail that Jesus appeared first and foremost to women. The only reason why that is in, do you know why? 
is because it happened that way. This is real. This is not made up. I'm not sure if you guys picked up on this, but in verse 19, when he appears to his disciples, we read, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. And then when Mary goes to the tomb, it was still dark. It was the morning, the first day of the week. Now, John has already whispered in our ears, garden, garden, garden. And now he's whispering something else in our ears. First day of the week, first day of the week, first day of the week. You've got that repetition. So what's up? Where else in the Bible do you have language like that? The first day of the week, or the first day, or the second day. Where else do you find that? Class, well done, Genesis. And there's this interesting link. Let me just push it a little bit more. What did, Jesus, what did God do at the end of his creative work? He rested, right? So many scholars looking at the resurrection account, uh, the, the, the crucifixion account, looks at Jesus dying on the cross. And what's his last word? Words, it is done. It is done. Does that sound familiar? It's almost like we are reaching back into Genesis. This recreation work is done. Now, if this new creation work is done, when he rises from the dead, what day is that going to be? The first day of the week. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay, well, I mean, we, we, we can linger there a little bit longer. So, Christians celebrate Sunday. Every time we come together on a Sunday, you know what we are celebrating? The fact that Jesus is risen. Even if even churches who do not talk about Jesus being risen celebrate the risen Jesus on a Sunday. Because if he wasn't risen on a Sunday, then they wouldn't be celebrating it on a Sunday. The, the day of worship moved from the Saturday in the Jewish calendar. Remember, the, the early Christians were all Jewish. It moved from the Saturday in the Jewish calendar to the Sunday. Why? Because now that is the first day of the week. It's new creation. Are you guys with me? In this mess, remember darkness, darkness, darkness. We've been following darkness all along and all throughout this story. And for a moment, this flashing light comes out of that tomb, and that light shines. Now, if you've ever read a little bit of John's gospel, or maybe you've heard this, this is how John starts his gospel. This is in verse 4 and 5 of the first chapter. Talking about Jesus, he says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. That Sunday started so gloomy, so dark, and then boom, it was this explosion of light. Again, thinking of Genesis, does it sound familiar? Have you ever heard of, uh, of Genesis 1 verse 2? The earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light. This explosion of light. It's new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. 
And perhaps for some of us, we cannot see that light. Maybe we've heard the story too many times. Maybe we're struggling with many things in our lives that, that just doesn't make it, uh, that just doesn't enable us to reflect on it and think, yeah, this, this, this really is something that changes everything. And there's an invitation. And that invitation is, come and see. I'm not sure if you guys noticed this. I've, I've never noticed this. But in my prep for this, I saw this and I think it's amazing. When Jesus appears to the disciples, they're in the house and the doors are locked. John makes a point of telling us the doors are locked. And the next moment, Jesus is in that house, standing in the middle of them. What can we assume that he can, with his resurrected body, walk through walls? Is that safe to assume, according to this narrative? Yeah? He can walk through walls. Now, here's the question. Why was the stone rolled away in front of the tomb? If Jesus can walk through walls, why on earth did an angel, we read that in Matthew, had to roll away the stone? Was Jesus knocking on the inside and saying, oh, please, man, listen, I'm resurrected, massive miracle, just want to appear to my friends. Can you just roll away the stone? Angel comes, oh, man, thank you so much for doing that. And then he, he goes on his way. Is that what happened? No, he had a resurrected body. He could just walk out of the tomb in the same way that he could just walk into that building, Right? So why was the tomb, why was the stone rolled away? Why was the angel sitting on top of the stone? It's not to let Jesus out. It's to let us in. Does that make sense? The stone is rolled away not for Jesus' benefit, for our benefit. Come and see. And when, when, I, when I go to, through a rough patch faith-wise and and maybe I'm just going through a patch of doubt. Then when I study the resurrection accounts and I look at it in, in the Gospels and I, I, I listen to people, someone like N.T. Wright talking about the evidence of the resurrection, it just melts my heart and it just leaps uh, for joy. There's, there's something that happened. And I'm just reminded that this is not a fairy tale. This is real, and this changes everything. So, so maybe you're going through a doubt patch. Maybe you are going just through the motions, and you're living a life, but you're not really living a life in which you think that this is actually real. I want to invite you, come and see. That stone is rolled away. I don't think in the... If you look at all the faiths around, around the world, you can't, you're going to struggle to discredit that faith if you come with some sort of uh, historical argument. If you, if you make this knockdown argument against Islam that Muhammad wasn't really in that particular place or maybe didn't even exist, I don't think that's going to destroy Islam because it is the message of Allah, Right? If you say that the Buddha didn't really exist and we've done now this cutting-edge uh, archaeology and Buddha was actually blah, 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 he didn't exist, do you think Buddhism will be touched by that? Absolutely not. Buddhism will exist because the teachings of the Buddha is fine. It can uh, exist com completely independent of whether this is history or not. 
But if the tomb is not empty, then Christianity is useless. And we, above all, are to be pitied. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> These Christians were actually quite cocky in the first century when they were talking about this and saying, why do you, why do you uh, tell us this new faith? Because, well, we saw him. We can't not, not, not see him, you know. We, we experienced this, and uh, this is something that happened in time and space. It is real. Come and see. And this gives us hope, and it gives us something to hold on to. It's not just an academic exercise, friends, to just look at the, the resurrection accounts and think, oh, yeah, yeah, this looks very probable. No, no, no. The ramifications of it is, is far beyond that. I'm thinking of a couple of people, yeah. And I, I, let, me, let me address them directly. When I started out by talking about these dark moments, these, these dark events, I want to say, Cindy, your husband, who was taken away from you at a time you needed him most. He is not buried. He is planted. And Sishle and Cebu, your boy who was taken from you so cruelly, that boy is not buried. He is planted. And my wife's dad died earlier this year, and... Lorraine, your father, who raised you by himself, is not buried. He is planted. Whatever it is that you are going through, whether it is addiction, whether it's loss, whether it's fear, whether it's failure, whether it's disappointment, you need to know that it does not end at the tomb. There is a divine gardener, and he is tending to his garden. And even if you are currently surrounded by darkness, you need to know that you are not buried, you are planted. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we struggle to always grapple and internalize the magnitude of, 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 of what you did on this Easter Sunday. Maybe we've heard it too many times. Maybe we're just going through the motions. Maybe it's just an excuse to go on a long weekend retreat. We pray that you can break our complacency you can break our doubt and allow us to, to really come and see. And Lord, as we try to follow you, you invite us on this path that you went through, and that is 
if many of us are struggling to, to have new life in our lives, you invite us to die to ourselves so that new life can emerge. And that is also difficult and it hurts to lose what's for a long time been most of who we are. But Lord Jesus, in light of the resurrection, it makes all the sense in the world. Lord, there are so many people who are hopeless, who are standing next to an empty grave, and they're looking inside, and there's a loved one, and they think that there might never be another happy day in their lives. May they hold on to this hope of your resurrection. Oh Jesus, may we also know that although this world descended into darkness, that you scored a massive victory on that famous day and it was the beginning of your new creation and light exploded into this world. Help us, Lord, to be children of light. Help us to live in light of that light. It is in your name, in the glorious name of Jesus Christ, our risen King, whose name we pray. Amen.